Good morning, everyone. Wow. Let's ask everybody online. Good morning, everyone. Listen. Wow, that was so loud. So good to have you joining us. I'm not sure everybody's glad to be here or not. Are you glad to be here? Praise the Lord. All right. Yes. So good to be together. Well, we've got an exciting morning. We're going to listen to the word of the Lord. We're anticipating Christmas. Look, these candles tell us that there's one more week until Christmas. And I was telling the early service, Hamp and I are so excited about what you're going to get us. We just can't wait. Now, what a precious time it is to be alive. And what a joy it is to be gathering together today. We do have a special time this morning. But first, before I get to that, I want to make sure we cover some announcements. And uh, then we'll have uh, a special time here in just a second. I'm sure each of you have been feverishly watching the news and you've been getting the updates from the governor. And uh, Thursday I listened to his message. And uh, again, there was nothing that hindered churches. And so praise the Lord for that. And so uh, as a church, we're going to continue to move forward. We believe that God would have us to be together and to continue to do so. Uh, so you come as God leads you. Uh, we are making plans if we need to for other folks. Uh, we're trying to make sure our 9 a.m. is filled up. So again, if you're not part of the 9 a.m. Sunday school class, and uh, if you would just help us come to the 9 a.m. service, that would be a great blessing as we balance things out. Uh, the plan right now is, is if God continues to provide more people that want to be in the house of the Lord, we're going to go to a Sunday night service. Uh, we'll go to a Monday night, a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night, a Thursday night, a Friday night. I'm serious. We'll do that in order that God's people can have an opportunity to worship. And so be sensitive to one another. We're commanded to love one another, right? We have differences of feelings and opinions about things and life in general. And so we're always called to love and be in unity with one another. So be sensitive to those around you. But that's the plan as we move forward. Now, Hamp has asked me to make sure that if you have not two things signed up for the Christmas Eve service, please just let us know. There's a clipboard in the back. Some of you have, if you have not, to let us know how many is coming. Uh, that would be great. And by the way, we're doing this because uh, we didn't say this last time. We're just trying to get a feel for how many people may come, all in an effort to be sensitive. We may be adding a second Christmas Eve service, okay? Right now, it doesn't look like we're going to need to do that, but we'll see what happens this week, okay? So just let us know. This is just a form uh, to let us know your key information that's also in the back. If you would kindly fill that out for us, that would be very, very helpful as we try to make sure we get information to you properly and timely and uh, you hear about things. Very, very important. Uh, so next Sunday, uh, the children will be singing in both services. Missy's been working with the kids. And by the way, there's practice right after this service again. And so we're looking forward to that in anticipation of another time of celebration. already mentioned about the Christmas Eve service. On December 27th, we will be having our celebration of 2020. And yeah, I know that sounds kind of hard to believe, but we're going to celebrate all that God is doing in the life of the church. And he is. And uh, we want to celebrate that. But particularly, we want to make sure that we're uh, celebrating uh, Anna and Ernesto and the life that God has given to them and how we've been blessed by them. Uh, our, he's our Spanish pastor, and they're going to be leaving us. And so next Sunday uh, after the service, we're going to have a time of meal and fellowship. If you want to come, uh, nobody's going to look down on you if you don't. And so those of you who want to come and celebrate that time, you're more than welcome to do that. Okay? So now, with that being said, let's jump right into this part. We've been so excited 
to have Brother Danny and uh, Miss Peggy as a church member, church family members, but now Danny's going to be joining us as an elder, and today is that affirmation. And so uh, let me just catch you up to date. If you've not been a part of our studies in eldership, just understand this, that uh, the Bible mentions elders numerous times over. It's a very well understood Old Testament fact of a position, if you will. Uh, but basically, there are three words in the scriptures for leaders. There's the bishop, there's the elder, and there's the overseer. Well, interestingly, all of those words really mean the same thing, or they come from the same type of wording, root wording. And so each of them just has a little bit of a different function in, in their aspect of their role. And I could say much about that. I have lots of notes here I was going to go over with you. But just suffice it to say, in the New Testament especially, Titus and Timothy, First Peter, uh, we see very clear references to these uh, men who serve in the church as leaders. And by the way, uh, nowhere in the New Testament do we find a one-person leadership. Uh, that is really just not biblical. There is to be a plurality of leadership. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not leaders within the leadership. You know, I would be the senior leader in that sense. Uh, but there are a group of us that lead and make spiritual decisions for the church. And, and that's what an elder is. Uh, if you want to go back, I think we could probably find in the archives the messages that I taught on that some time ago. If you have questions, please let us know. So uh, Tuesday of last week was the last day of the 30 days that our bylaws call for the church, those church members, to have any concerns brought forward uh, to the elders uh, about any candidate that may be considering eldership. We've not heard anything. Uh, Brother Danny did say jokingly that maybe during all the COVID time, some of you have lost your minds and you weren't able to think of anything that you would have ordinarily thought about, uh, but we know that that's not true. So uh, we're blessed to have Brother Danny and his precious wife Peggy to be a part of the church, but also to be a part of our leadership. And so I'm going to have you come, Danny and Peggy as well. And um, let's see, let's grab a microphone so that they can have this. Can we use this blue one here? And uh, Danny, I'd ask Danny if he wanted to say anything. And uh, by the way, if I could just also affirm this. Um, I don't know if you can see us on camera here. Let's step over here so the folks watching online can see us. Um, there was a moment in our meeting where Danny slipped out. You don't know this. But he slipped out to do something. And we had the opportunity to talk to Peggy for just a minute. And there is nothing more precious than having a woman of God say about her husband that what you see is what you really get. And so those of us that know Brother Danny, uh, by her own affirmation, that's what we get. And so we're greatly blessed. And not all women say that about their husbands, okay? I've been in meetings before where uh, that's not been always the case, uh, but we're blessed as a church family. So anyway, I wasn't in there, so you were not in there. So and there I were, said, don't tell him I said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I let the cat out of the bag. Go ahead, brother. You wanted to say a couple things. Yeah. to serve and not to be any more than anyone else here, more or less, just to be one of you and serve alongside of you. We all have struggles that we deal with, as well as me, so I'm not going to put myself above anyone else, and we're, we all struggle together, so I just keep that in mind, but I, um, you know, I'm just, I feel honored and privileged to be able to to do it, and I've always wanted to have a life of service, and um, <clears throat> I was reading the other night, and I just wanted God to lead me, and I, I asked for your prayers, you pray for me in the way that I should serve, and then I would 
that would do it and had with the strength and energy that God would give me. But I was reading in John chapter 21 and uh, Peter and, and Jesus and Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And uh, once um, Peter answered him and, and said yes, and Jesus said, well, attend my lambs. Mm -hmm. And he asked him again and he said, feed my sheep. And the third time he said, tend my lambs. So part of the shepherding process, it involves being a shepherd and feeding and tending to the sheep of the flock. And so more specifically, my, uh, what I feel God is leading me to is to uh, shepherd and to minister to the senior adults and not to leave anyone out, but more specifically to the seniors. So I'll be reaching out to some of the seniors in the congregation. I won't show up at anyone's door, but I'll be in contact by phone or mail or whatever. But uh, I'm just, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I'm anxious to get started. I'm about to retire from my career at the University of Virginia and, and, and start this. And uh, I'm, I'm just thankful to have the purpose and the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, you Brother Hannah. Go ahead, Brother. Well, I'll just say that I'm excited about about Danny being an elder and about our, the ministry. And I do ask that you pray for him as he is about to retire and enter a whole new chapter of our lives. And But we're excited. And we love our church family. Amen. At the end of John 21, uh, Jesus started to, uh, Peter started to question uh, Jesus and said, well, you know, you're asking me the, all these times, do you love me? He said, what about this man over mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, if I choose for him to remain until I come, he said, you follow me. Yeah. So sometimes everything that's going on in the world around us distract us, but he asked us to follow him. And if, if we can keep that simple thing in mind, and that's what I'm hoping to do is to follow mm -hmm. him in spite of all the things the COVID related and so forth that are going on in the world. Amen. So anyway, thank you. That's good. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're here this morning because we, uh, we owe our debt of love and life to you, as we'll see again here in just a few minutes. But Lord, we're especially so grateful for Danny and Peggy and uh, Lord, their life service to you in this church and in other churches. And, uh, Lord, we just thank you for the years that you've given them to us and their testimony goes before them. Uh, we heard nothing negative whatsoever. And so we attribute that to you and to your glory and just reflect that back to you and just want to thank you for the days ahead. We don't know what they're going to contain, but we're thankful that you do. And so we look forward to what you're going to do. Lord, I pray that you bless and honor Danny and Peggy, uh, us as a church, as leaders as just family members of one another, as just those in relationship because of Christ. Lord, that you would continue to bless us as a people, that you protect us physically, emotionally, spiritually. And Lord, that we would be used as a light of yours into this dark world. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. We're excited, brother. Let me just read uh, a couple things here. Um, couple scripture verses here that should be on your minds as now that you think about this. Uh, I mentioned before, I believe maybe a couple weeks ago, that we would want you to consider Brother Danny, a pastor. That's again what the word means, pastor, elder, bishop, overseer. And so we call him Pastor Danny, okay? So or 
uh, however he chooses to be called, if you think of him that way as a shepherd over you. Um, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 5, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's not dictatorship. That's servant leadership. We consider ourselves to be servants, even under you as servants, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And that's not because of the University of Virginia, uh, but that's because of service of the Lord to the Lord. And then Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Think about that now. As those who will give an account, those of us who serve in leadership over you, will stand before the Lord one day and we will give an account for our leadership. Uh, that's something you won't have to do, but we will stand there and God will, whatever he will do, will hold us accountable for your, our leadership over you. Let them do this with joy, speaking of the leaders, and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, God now reflects that back and says, if you're not gracious and, and subservient and in the sense of love towards your leaders, uh, then God will have some words and how he will do that, I don't know, uh, for you. But he just says that would be unprofitable. And uh, when the Lord speaks, we know he's serious, right? So thank you, Brother Danny. Thank you, Miss Peggy. We're blessed to have you with us. We really are. Okay, so let's move on now into our message for today. I promised you a part two from last week. This time, last time, let me back up and say that we looked at Jesus as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for your kind words and thoughts about that message today. We want to look at the second part, which is Jesus is a gift of God for our salvation. A gift of God for our salvation, okay? So let's stand together and let's pick up in Matthew chapter 1. I want to read the context from last week and just focus on one verse today, verse 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." Okay, now for today. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All right, praise the Lord. You may be seated. A very, very powerful, powerful, powerful passage of Scripture, and I hope one that you will not and have not taken lightly. Maybe for you today, this will be uh, the beginning of a study that you've never heard before. Uh, some things you've never heard, I don't know. For those of you who've been in the church for a while, you'll know that this will be somewhat of a review, but a reminder of the seriousness of which we find ourselves in as people of this world. Okay, So let's just start there. <clears throat> now, interestingly, Luke doesn't mention uh, this that Matthew does before the birth of Jesus, but he, but he does say something very similar about Jesus and his role after Jesus is born. And that's the passage that we often think about on Christmas, and that's from Luke chapter 2. So let's look at that again. You don't have to stand, but let's pick up in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened, if you can imagine that scene. 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Okay, so there's Luke's reflection after Jesus has been born now. This is immediately afterwards, at least the best that we can tell. We'll talk about that at some point. Uh, A little different from what Matthew proclaimed to both Joseph and Mary prior to his being born. Now, with that in mind, let's just go backwards a little bit like we did last time. Let's back up into Scripture and spend our time there and bring ourselves forward to this moment. I think that's really important as we need to hear all of this again to understand what the angel is proclaiming here and what the angels are proclaiming about Jesus in this verse for today. You and I know, and maybe if you don't know, I hope you will know, that from the time that Adam and Eve, according to the Bible, sinned against God, and that simply just means broke God's laws or rebelled against God, man, you and I have been separated from him, God. It all started way back in the garden. We were separated in the sense of sin caused a dividing wall between you and me and between God, more importantly. There was a division between us, a spiritual divide, which has reflected itself in a lot of ways physically, and you'll see this as we go through as we talk more about this. But just understand that as much as Adam and Eve prior to sin that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, which we'll look at in just a second, prior to them, I want you to try to imagine what it was, was like for them to be without sin, to live a life in perfect harmony with their creator. We really can't do that very well, can we? In fact, we can't do it at all because you and I don't know what a life without sin is like. We're so tainted with it, and that's the point here. But go back to those first couple chapters, and you'll realize that there was a perfect union between Adam and Eve and between them and their creator. No disparaging marks, no, uh, nothing against them, nothing that would keep them from being everything that God wanted them to be. What Adam and Eve enjoyed in this unhindered fellowship, and that's really what it was, was absolutely destroyed, though, absolutely destroyed when sin entered the picture, when they rebelled against God. And it happened because God had given to them a mandate to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they did it anyway, out of their own act of rebellion. And it was in that rebellious act that caused every human being every human being born to them because they were the first of the creation of the human race to be cursed, which is to be separated from our God. Now, that doesn't mean we can't understand that he's there, but having the intimacy of connectedness that God originally intended in perfection is not there. And this is where it all began. It separated us not only spiritually in that sense, but really as great, in great anguish of heart, You and I struggle on a regular basis with the emotional turmoil of this life, with the ups and downs and the things that come against us physically. We feel the weight of sin upon us as our bodies get older, as we start or stop losing the ability to do certain things, and we realize that this thing called sin truly is real because it's lived out in our lives that way. The things that we once didn't deal with are the things that we do deal with now. And then, again, as I said, just the emotional instability that comes with life, the mental instability 
that comes with life is all a result of this separation between us and our Creator, the one who originally designed for us to be perfect in our relationship with Him. Now, because I want to get this so clearly in our minds this morning, let's just pull the curtain back a little bit in the timing of things and go back to this passage in Genesis chapter 3. Because I want everybody who's with us this morning, whether online or here, to have not only heard this for many times over, but that you hear this at least for the first time, because it's so foundational to what we need to understand about this life. So here we go. So creation has happened, man has been made, the world is here, and we get to chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or we or you will die. And the serpent says to the woman in verse 4, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it, took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord, said, or the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Very powerful. Now, if you caught that, and if you were listening carefully to what was going on there, you first realize that this event not only caused Satan a lot of trouble, which it did right from the beginning, because he would become the impetus to cause man to go against everything that God is and all that creation was meant to be, which is what, by the way, again, you and I face every day. 
We have to get up, men, and go to work. Ladies, we get up and we go to work. We have to sweep dust out of the corners of our house. We have to move the cobwebs. We have to deal with all the emotional roller coasters in life, the pains of this and that, the struggles of this and that. It all started right here. And Satan is relentless in his attack against us. He continually comes against us. In fact, we're told in John's gospel... John describes him this way, that Satan comes to do three things, basically, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Three things that are the things that keep us at bay from God mostly throughout this life. And he does it not by the obvious things out here that we deal with, but by just the normal things of life. In other words, we don't just point out Satan and say, okay, you see, that's Satan over there doing that. We Attach names to it. You may think I'm crazy, but let me attach a name to something, and that would be COVID-19. You say, you think Satan has something to do with that? Absolutely, Satan has something to do with that. Did COVID-19 come from a cursed world? Absolutely, it came from a cursed world. It is a virus. It generated through the cursed work of the world and of the universe whether people are involved or not we know they were because people are involved in everything but satan what i want you to hear from god is satan is behind all of this as jesus would one day say that satan is the god of this world and he comes to do these three things to kill us to steal from us and ultimately he wants to destroy us and the last thing though he wants us to do is to be able to see him He is covert in what he does. He hides himself. He masks himself. He is a master hypocrite hiding behind the mask of life. You and I live our days in this bubble and we look at the world and we say, oh, this is just the way things are. The world's a mess. But what we fail to realize is that Satan is so much a part of this wickedness of this world, which is what the Lord is showing us here. But that's not really the point so much this morning as much as I want you to see Adam and Eve here. The real problem, in other words, is not Satan. The real issue in man's heart is man's heart. We are our own worst enemy. You and I create the biggest problems for ourselves because you and I are the ones who have been cursed. And we're cursed because of what God just said in Genesis 3. Every person that would come from Adam and Eve would bear the curse in their own lives. You and I come into this world people who are filled with sin. In fact, if you just look at the life of an infant, and you may find this a little challenging to believe, but an infant really cares nothing about you, right? An infant wants one thing, and that is to satisfy him or herself. We've said this many times before. Feed me now. Change my diaper now. Get up in the middle of your restful sleep in the middle of the night and take care of me. An infant is at the epitome of showing us what the curse of sin is all about. And so from our earliest days, we live with this dreaded thing in us. And the worst part of it all is that sin has caused you and me to want our own way in this life. We want to be in charge. We want to be the controller, not the controlled. That's why we have arguments. We don't like what the other one wants us to do. We don't like the other person's idea because our idea is better. And you should listen to me. The problem is is that you and I just get better at being irritating 
and we're more kind about our irritations with one another. An infant just wakes up in the night and screams and wails and doesn't care who hears it. And you and I just put a smile on and say, you're going to do this my way because I am the one who's in control. Well, sin has caused all of that. And what it's really caused, and let's just say it this way, and this is what God was saying or Satan was saying to Eve. He was speaking truth when he said, God knows that you're going to know all things that he knows. In other words, what was he saying? He was saying, Eve, God knows that you will become God. You'll be God. You'll be your own God. You don't have to listen to him anymore. Just do your own thing and you can have it the way you want it. Evidently, she thought that was a pretty good deal. And so she took part in the fruit. And all of that, I'm just simply saying, is where all of our downward spiral began to turn and to go. And so God says, because of that, because of this sin, this atrocity against him, we owe him a debt. And it's a very severe debt. It's a debt that you and I can't pay. It's a debt that's so deep that it requires of us our very souls. The life that we live, the person we are inside of us is to pay for this debt. It's not a monetary kind of thing. It's not a thing that we can just create out of our own spinning in life and figure out how to pay, which is what most people try to do. And we can't pay it because the debt that God requires is the debt of perfection. God created Adam and Eve to be perfect. There were no flaws in them. They were sinless. And so God, being perfect himself, wants his creation perfect. But when man sinned in the garden, he gave up that perfection. Adam and Eve were going to live forever. They were never going to die. They would never have to deal with the things that you and I are dealing with. But they did, and they they did then, and you and I do now. And so God says, I require of every human soul a debt. And that is the debt to be perfect, to be righteous. What we're talking about here is to be pure inside as well as outside. Not just physically, but internally. And I shouldn't say it that way, not physically. God is not as concerned about us in our physical stature as much as he is in our hearts. And that's what we're reading from Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about our hearts. We are to be holy. We're to be holy just as he is holy and righteous just as he is righteous. This is the demand of God. And interestingly, internally, each of us know it. We all know we need to be holy. We feel it. We intuitively know this. And that's why it's so hard to work in this life to be what we want to be. We, we work to be attractive to other people. We want people to recognize us for our good looks and our strength and our abilities and all these things because we have this insatiable desire to be better than the other person. And that's all because we're tainted with this thing called sin. It embraces us at the depth of our souls. So we feel it, we know it, and we try to overcome it in all kinds of ways. In fact, sin and Satan himself continually try to deceive us into thinking there's something we can do about it. Our world is just going crazy trying to figure out how I can be good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. So much so that it will 
spend money, do things, act upon, wish, hope for, make crazy demands, all thinking that somehow this God will be satisfied with who I am. They even create gods of their own making. We'll see in just a minute from Romans. Thinking that I can be good enough. I can do it and, uh, and I can make it. All the while, what we're really doing is measuring ourselves against the person sitting beside us. And we're saying, well, look at them. Good grief. I can dress a lot better than that. Or my hair will look certainly better than that if I just do this or that. And we kind of frown upon one another because it's this insatiable desire to create inside of ourselves something that God will be pleased with. But first, we're going to be pleased with ourselves because remember, sin has taught us that we are God. And so I don't care what you think. What I really want to know is, am I God? And am I being God the way I want to be God? But alas, we understand it's not possible. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we spend our entire lives trying to be something we cannot be. And it just drains us. No man has the ability to be good enough to earn God's favor. Nobody can do it. I mean, we could say it this way. There's nothing in you and me that gives us what we need to be perfect. We don't have it. But we strive for it. And we work hard for it. But there's no way we can do it. And God, as he looks at our pitiful state, our pitiful state, says the only alternative for you is to be removed from my holy presence. That's where we find ourselves in our separation. God looks at us and he says, I created you this way, but you rebelled against me. My curse passes down through every living soul after you. And so in order for me to be in my perfect state, I will not and cannot let you into my perfect existence. And so we are doomed, along with Satan and his angels, to be locked away in a prison of darkness for eternity, forever out of God's presence. Never, by the way, to be free again. And folks, I don't know about you, but that is a terrible predicament. That is a terrible plight. A place in which people will find themselves often, people who thought they were okay, but find out that they're not. Our world is living full-blown, trying to be people that they cannot be, thinking that somehow God is going to be okay with them. And I know this personally to be true because I've talked to people like this. How many times have we been on missions trips and witnessed to people and asked them, do you know about God? Do you know about sin? And whatever the conversation may look like in the moment, only to have them respond with, oh, nobody can know that but we don't do this and we don't do that and we do do this and we do do this all in acts and attempts to be something that they hope one day when they stand before God, he's going to say, you know what? You were a little better than this guy over here, so I'm going to let you in. And that's how people live their lives. But it is futile. I want to show you a couple parables that Jesus taught on this very subject just so you see it from him. In Matthew 22... Here's what he said. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. 
And they went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember Jesus had said, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? And so he gives them this story, this earthly story that they would have an understanding about the meaning. They could connect with it because it was a life kind of story. And so basically Jesus is telling them about this king who invited everybody to a wedding party for his son. With all the great preparations, it was going to be an amazing grand party, but to his surprise, nobody paid attention. I mean, the invitations went out. The king spent this and that, and it was going to be a glorious occasion, but nobody was interested. And so the king gets furious because none of his guests who he invited come. And we're told he destroys them. And because the wedding is all set, the king invites more people. Everyone and anybody could find, whether they're good or evil, it didn't matter what their life was like. They were invited to come and he gives to them, and this really becomes part of the point or one of the major points, he gives to them the finest of clothes to come and be a part of this feast. But as you just heard, when he sees that no one comes to the party, he finds this one man, rather he finds one who came without the clothes. And he throws the man out, not because he's not invited, because everybody was invited, you remember? But he he was thrown out because he rejected what the king had said for him to do, which was to come with the proper attire. And so the king throws him out of the kingdom. And so the disciples are confused by all of this. And so Jesus is explaining this. And he says, there's only one way to God. And that is through me, his son. My father, in a sense, has invited everybody to the great wedding feast. That is, to the eternal party in heaven, if you want to put it that way. And he sends out his invitation. And this is in the context of history that Jesus is bringing up. He sends out the invitation and the Jews, those people who received the invitation first, rejected the son. And so God destroys the temple in 70 AD. And there's no more lineage of the Jewish priests to be carried on. And so instead of the Jews, God now sends his invitation to the world. Not just the Jewish people, but to people like you and me. And he says, come, come, come. But then Jesus gets to the end of this parable and he says, but there's one guy who shows up and he doesn't have the proper invitation, basically. And so when the king finds out that he tried to come in another way through his own good works or through some other means instead of through Jesus, he throws him out into outer darkness. That's the point of that particular parable. There's another one that Jesus tells in Luke 13. As he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, and this is a great question, are there just a few who are being saved? 
And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who shall, who will be first and some are first who will be last. So again, this parable is very similar to the first one in that the numbers of people who will be greatly shocked that they are not in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it's because they believe that they could enter by some other way. By their deeds. By how they live this life. Thinking they'll gain heaven by what they do. But instead, Jesus says, you know where they're going to end up? They're going to end up in hell. Because they didn't really know and understand. Because they didn't come through Jesus. Even though, and here's the sad part. Even though... What they did, they did in Jesus' name. Did you know that? Did you know that it's even possible to do what you do in the name of Jesus and not really know Jesus? To not really be a part of his of who he really is and the fact that he is God come in the flesh. There are multitudes of people, beloved, who live their religious lives believing they're okay with God when they're not because they follow some prescription or some mandate instead of knowing the king himself. This is what Jesus is saying basically in these two parables. John MacArthur said this, the torment of hell will not be limited to the pain of punishment, which is what we often think, right? But will include the remorse, the shock, the surprise of those who ended up there despite thinking they were going to heaven. Folks, listen, the simple point of all of this is, is that we're on a collision course with hell. Every single soul who comes to planet Earth or is born in planet Earth is on a collision course with hell unless... We see Jesus for who he is. Unless we see him as Lord and put our trust in him. Let me just show you some verses of how Paul puts this. The apostle. Romans 1. And I want you to listen to the words carefully. Because again, God doesn't mix his words. He's very clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what he's talking about? He's saying that intuitively you and I were created to know that there is a God who made us. We know it. We watch the world and we see the world worshiping something because intuitively the world knows that God exists. That's what he's saying here. Watch in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Now they may not know him as God, but they know God exists. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, 
talking about the heavenly realm. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In other words, he's saying, you as the creation of God, you walk outside on a beautiful day in December when it's 67 degrees and you look at the amazing glory around you and you say, there must be a creator. And we're right. There is a creator. That's what God's talking about. I put within you the ability to know that I am real. In Romans 1, going on to verse 22, he says, So professing to be wise, though, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and in four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You know what he's saying? He's saying throughout the ages, mankind with this intuitive desire to worship didn't know the real God and so he created stone artifacts and altars and all kinds of weird things in order to worship something because he was built to worship. But he didn't know the real God and so in his own wisdom, professing to be wise, aha, I'll worship this. And that's what Paul's talking about. And he goes on and he says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we look through history and we see that. Who is blessed forever, amen. It's almost like Paul says, he just gets into this state of telling us what bad things have happened to mankind. And then he talks about the creator and he's just like, has to pause for a minute and be so excited at praise the Lord, right? That's kind of what you hear there. But watch now, Verse 26, for this reason, what reason? The reason that man designs to go himself his own way, to follow his own God. God gave them over to what? To degrading passions, for example. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Beloved, is that not our world today? We have a plethora of people living out here in the world who are making decisions even for us, who are living lives, and not just people in leadership, but just people in general who have gone so far in the realm of going after what they want in the worship of their God, even if it's of themselves, God says, okay, here's, okay, here's my response. I'm going to turn you over to that. Go ahead. I'm going to darken your mind so that you cannot and will not understand anything of the truth anymore. That's what it means to be turned over to, to a depraved mind. It is literally a mind that cannot think like a rational mind can think. God turns them over. You and I look at our culture today and we say, how can people do this? 
How can they make these decisions? It is so illogical. It's so irrational. Well, here's the answer. Because those people who were created in the image of God abandoned what they knew to be true intuitively, and God says, okay, go have your way. And so the Holy Spirit writes further through the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 5, because of your stubbornness, An unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person, nobody's going to miss this, according to his deeds, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. In other words, the entire world. And Paul, continuing on further in verse 3 on this same theme, he says quoting the Old Testament, almost, let me just use my words here in my own way of saying this. Paul says, listen, there's none righteous. No one. There's none who understands the reality of the depths of sin. And I'm ad-libbing there. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp, that's a snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody's righteous. Not one. To which Paul will say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. And if that's not enough, God elaborates even further and says, there is a payment for that life. There's a debt. This is what I was talking about earlier. There's a debt that you and I cannot keep in and of ourselves. We cannot pay to get ourselves out of this. So the consequence then is death. Ezekiel 18.20. The person who sins will die. Guess who that is? You and me. Right? Because we're all sinners. Romans 1.32. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. Practice the things of the flesh, the things that are anti-God. Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Listen, I've said this so many times at funerals. The number of times there have been a dead body in front of me is proof, physical proof, that the reality of Scripture is true. God says we all die. There's the dead body. And we all know we're going to be there. Romans 6.23, the payment of sin is death. Romans 8.6, for the mind set on the sinful nature or the flesh is death. If you want things your own way and you think you can be righteous enough, there's one payment that you have to pay and that is death. Romans 8.13, for if you're living according to your sinful nature or flesh, you must die. God is very clear. Very clear. And that's what every soul needs to know. Folks, listen, we are sinners. And nobody has to tell you that, do they? I didn't have to tell you that this morning. You already knew that. How did you know that? Because you know inside your heart there's a problem. You just intuitively know it. That's why you have problems in this life. 
because you're the one who's messed up. But so is your neighbor. We're all messed up. That's exactly what God is saying here. And God showed us this intuitively in our hearts in Romans 2.15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, they know it, they prove it, they live it out. Their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or else defending them. What's Paul saying? He's saying God placed within each person this thing called the conscience that is the mechanism that helps us determine right from wrong. And when we go against our conscience, we feel the prick of that violation and we stop for a second and we make a decision on what we're going to do. We either follow it or we don't. The sad part is even our conscience, though, has been tainted by sin and so we can turn it off. We can go so far down the path of sin that was once convicting us where we knew it was wrong to where we don't feel the conviction anymore because we have the ability to turn it off. Paul saying, God gave you a conscience. You know you're a sinner. You know it's true. And thankfully, because God is not, whole, not only holy, but he's also just, and this is so beautiful, his justness will show mercy to the one who confesses his or her sin. Now think about this. Because God is holy, that makes him just. That means he's righteous in everything he does. But to be just in the perfect sense of the word justness means that mercy comes as a result of that as well. The reason there is injustice in the world is because there's sin. Sin creates the inability to discern between right and wrong perfectly, but God discerns perfectly. And so he is just in his dealings, which means he's also going to be merciful to those who ask for forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? That's the definition of justice. God wants to show great mercy. And he has. Decade after decade. Century after century, year after year, God raised up men and women of his own to call people to repentance, to give them the ability to have a right relationship with him again. But guess what? Man continually rebelled. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, which of the prophets have you not killed? You killed them all because you didn't want to hear it. God has shown great mercy in providing all that he did. And you just go back through the Bible at some point and just look at the merciful acts God has done to bring man back to himself. To be what we could not be for ourselves. And then, praise his name, ultimately, and this brings us to our thought for today and our conclusion, and that is, in his most divine act of mercy, he gave us his son. He sent his son. Now, as a dad, I can't imagine. But as the perfect father, that's what he did. He offered his own son to us as a peace offering. His son came, paid the debt that we could not pay. The debt that we owe to God that we cannot pay, as we've already defined. And he gave his life to pay for it. So let's fast forward to this little town in Nazareth once again and look at this beautiful moment to a young couple, unbeknownst to them. Suddenly, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, this young girl, and says, Mary, hey, 
you found favor with God? Me? Yeah, you. Listen to what he says. You will have a child, and you will name him Jesus, and what's he going to do? He's going to save his people from what? From their sins. Praise the Lord. Unbelievable. It's astonishing, really, when you think about it. God, out of his own divine heart and his own divine act of mercy, would provide the payment for us. This divine moment in history when God would make the final sacrifice necessary for any soul who would repent to come to him. It's a gift, beloved. It's a gift of redemption to buy us back, to bring us back into right relationship with him. A gift of salvation, of eternal life for everybody who puts their hope and their trust in Jesus. Listen, Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is what? It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life. He paid for us to be free. Romans 5.21, as sin reigned in death, and we've just spent 40 minutes talking about that, Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And listen to this, Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, and that's where we were, right? We were helpless at the right time. In God's divine timetable, he came to a young couple named Joseph and Mary and told them, My son will be put into you by the power of the Holy Spirit and he will die for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, nobody's left out, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Aren't you thankful for that? we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Beloved, you should memorize that verse. You should write it down. You should mark it down. Having now been justified by his blood. Justified is a legal declaration. It's a legal term. You have been legally declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven because of the blood of Christ who saved us from the wrath that is coming upon all who are ungodly. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be, what? Saved by his life. The greatest question I believe that anybody could ask themselves is how do I have this righteous life with God? How do I do that? I mean, that's what we try, right? How can I be assured that God forgives me? How can I be assured in my soul that God forgives me? Well, listen to what God says. God has the answer for all our questions. If you confess, this is Roman 10, Romans 10, 9, if you confess, confess means to agree with. In a courtroom, when a judge listens to a confessional, Basically, what's happening there is the person who's guilty is agreeing with the judge that there was a problem. That's what confession is. If you agree with God, 
With your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. You'll be saved. For with the heart, the inner person, the inner soul of the man or woman, the heart a person believes, that's where true belief comes from, right? When we say we love somebody, it's not just in our head. It better not be if we're talking to our spouse, right? Because they'll know. We can buy them all kinds of gifts and do all kinds of nice things at Christmas and birthdays and anniversaries, but if our heart doesn't love them, there's a problem. We can live our lives outwardly thinking we're loving God, and this was the point of the parables, but our heart be far from him. And so the Lord says, with a heart a person, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You know what the Lord is saying? He's saying for any person who believes in their heart that I have done what I've said I've done, there's no reason for you to ever be silent when somebody asks you what you believe. Confess it. Audibly. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? <clears throat> well, I mean, I go to church. I was, um, I was baptized. I, uh, I give. Um, I show up at all the major events, and well, I'm pretty committed. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe? Do you believe that he paid for your sins, that he took the punishment that you deserve upon himself? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he died for you and that he literally rose from the dead? The confession of the heart should be, yes, praise his name. I'm not saying that's what you should write down, that's what you should say. I'm just saying the confession should be not something that's just written, but something that comes from the heart. I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call all of this the ABCs, and there are lots of things that have been done throughout the years to help us remember. A, just simply admit that you're a sinner. Not just up here, but here. Admit this. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. He literally did that and confess Jesus as your Lord. I'm not God anymore. That's what the power of the cross has done. The power of the resurrection has broken the bondage of sin in my heart that says to me, you are God, Bruce. Live as God. Have your own life. Do what you want. No, the power of the cross now says, I'm not God. He's God. I now follow him in everything, in the way I think, the way I act, the way I talk, the way I walk, where I go, what I don't do, what I do do. He is Lord. I follow him. I no longer need my own way. And Jesus says, you will be saved. You'll be saved. You'll be saved. Did you hear that? You'll be saved. You will be saved. It's not, well, I hope so. I've talked to so many people. Well, ask them, do you know that you have a home in heaven? Well, I hope so. I understand the immaturity of that, but listen, the Bible says, no, you can know. That's what we're hearing. 
Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled you through his fleshly body, through death, in order to present you to God, holy and blameless beyond reproach. It's as if when Jesus dies on the, died on the cross, he goes to the Father and he presents us before him and says, because of what I've done, Father, I present to you this soul that has been made righteous because of my death. Not by what they do. Not by what they said, not by what acts they've gone through, not, not the number of prayers that they've offered up, not the, the places that they've been or the good deeds that they've done. No, they're righteous because of me, what I've done. And we can know it to be truth. And this is why John said in 1 John 5, 13, these things, what things, John? These things? I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, not here, but here, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Aren't you glad this morning that God doesn't want you to question your eternal security? He doesn't. What father in his right mind and in an earthly sense would want his son to question such a thing? God does not dangle a carrot in front of us and make us go through all kinds of hoops to create our own righteousness. No, he did it. He did it. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. The moment when the son came to be born of a virgin to be God for us because we can't be God and to ultimately die for us but finally be resurrected for us so that we can be made righteous in his sight. And we can know. Beloved, listen, Jesus is a gift. He's a gift. He's a gift. He's a gift to save you. The question is not any of what he's done. The question is in your own heart. Will you let him save you? That's the question. Will you let him save you? Will you deny yourself as being God and open yourself and say, God, I need you as my Savior today, right now. And I confess you as Lord, come into my life and make me what you want me to be. Jesus says, you will be saved. You will be saved. And that was the thief on the cross, wasn't it? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. Beloved, listen, wouldn't today be a great day? I mean, an awesome day to confess Jesus as Lord. If you've never done that, if you've put your hope and trust in what somebody has been telling you to do or to believe or say, let all that go and just see yourself in front of Jesus and say, I confess you as my Lord and I surrender my heart to you. You know what his response is going to be? You will be saved. You'll be saved. I can assure you that. You know what COVID has taught us? I thought about this the other day. COVID is teaching the world death is reality. Right? I mean, everywhere we turn, death, uh, COVID, death, uh, COVID, death. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. Oh, you get COVID, you're going to die, right? Isn't that what we hear? 
Well, guess what? That's not a newsflash. The Bible has been telling us, you're going to die. But when it becomes real in our faces, all of a sudden it's proven to us, hey, you're going to die. And we're all going to die. But the glory of it all is, is that one day through Jesus, we will be with him forever. We'll leave our bodies. We'll take on new bodies. And that's a whole other message. And we'll be a part of his kingdom forever. That's a good deal. I'll take that deal any day. Right? If you want to proclaim something about COVID, tell the world, you know what COVID's teaching us? You better know where you're going to stand in eternity. That's the question. It's not about whether you're going to get COVID and die. If you get COVID and you die, the real question is, do you know where you're going to be? That's the real question. And that's not the question Satan wants us to hear. Satan behind it all is saying, oh, be afraid. You might die. And we're fearful because we're not really certain where we're going. Right? We're not real sure. So we get afraid. <gasps> what if it doesn't work? What if this is all a lie and that what Satan says? Oh, come on. You don't really believe that, do you? That's what he said to Eve. You don't, you don't really believe that that's what God said. Listen, here's the real truth. God knows you'll be like him. So what Satan does now is he says, you don't really believe all that, do you? So we get fearful. And we live our lives afraid. And God says, hey, I've come to save you. I've come to rescue you. God's gift. Wouldn't you like to know you'd be safe with God no matter what? That's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff and worthy of remembering. Hey, listen, today is communion. I always find, I was telling somebody after the other service, it's so amazing to me how communion service just always so fits with the message of the Lord. But you know why that is? It's because the Bible is about Jesus. It's about his death and his resurrection. The life that he lived for us. The fact that he came for us. Not because of something we can do. We can't do it. He came to do it for us. And all he asks is for us to put our full trust in him. And then he says, once you do that, take part in the juice, take part in the bread as a reminder of what I've done for you and do that regularly. That's why we do it once a month. You didn't prescribe when, we just do it. So if you have in your hands there, hopefully you've gotten one of the uh, cups. If not, we can get that to you. There's some on the table in the back. On one side, there's a little piece of um, bread that you can pull the little cover back off of. And I want to just lead us through what we often here at the church go through, and that is from Paul's message to the church in Corinth. As he received instruction from the Lord, this is what he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So he takes him to the picture of the upper room before the night of his crucifixion. And this is what Jesus did. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said to the disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever forget, in other words, that I gave my body, my life for you. So as obedient people to the Lord, take part in that cracker right now in honor of what the Lord has asked us to do. Now if you flip the little cup over and you pull the paper off the top there, you'll have the juice exposed. And listen to verse 24. 
And when he had given thanks again, uh, excuse me, he broke it, he took part of that. In verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm instituting the fact that my spirit will live in you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus shed his blood. He died. He literally died. And he came back to life so that you and I may live again. So if you believe the truth of what God is saying, take part in that juice as a symbolic reminder. That's what it is. It's a symbolic reminder of what the Lord has done for us. His blood did it. The juice doesn't do it. He satisfied the requirements thousands of years ago when he hung on the cross. And this is a reminder. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're celebrating the time that Jesus came as a baby. But right now we're celebrating his death for us. And we're looking forward to his coming again. Father, we thank you for the joy of gathering this morning. We thank you for the joy of, of our oneness together. We thank you for the privilege of having a mind that hears the truth. And we can identify with that in our souls. And we can acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for each person who's here today, for each who's listening online. Lord, that we have this reminder today for us that the Lord Jesus has come. And boy, aren't we looking for him to come again. And so we honor you and we thank you and we praise you and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Lord's blessings to you. You're dismissed.